The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, color enthusiast opinions, call the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who plays that funky music right, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on Game of Thrones, Once Upon a Time with Dan and Andy, the following with Andy and Nico, Castle, Warehouse 13, Supernatural, and Glee, and our sitcom section including Modern Family and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Americans, Fargo, Orphan Black, and Grimm, and maybe even a few more things. But before all of that, we're going to lay down the boogie right into our News with Nico section. Special Sherlock episode may air between seasons. Actor Martin Freeman hinted this week that the next installment of Sherlock could be a one-off special episode. According to Cult Box, Freeman, who portrays Watson, said there's a fantastic idea for a special Sherlock episode. Quote, Mark Gaddis may beat me up, but there is an idea for this one-off special that's such a good idea, and as I was listening to it, I thought, we've just got to do this, said Martin. And I don't know when we are going to be able to do it, unfortunately. The critically acclaimed TV show has struggled in the past with finding time for stars Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch, who are both busy filming other series and films. But a special episode sounds like a clever way to satisfy fans until season four comes out, as well as fit both actors' schedules. Freeman, however, still doesn't know when that might happen. I hope this is the case, because I can't wait until January of 2016 for more Sherlock, since it was two years between series one and two, and another two years between series two and three. So a one-off episode episode could help satiate us during that long hiatus. Oh yeah, I'd love it. I'm excited. Yeah, this sounds really cool and I do hope they actually do it. Well, and it's a great way to keep up interest in the show, even though it's huge. Yeah, th- that's true. I mean, when it, you go two years between series, it's tough. I know that's the BBC model, or not the BBC model, but the British model to do it, you know, when you can do it. But, oh man, <laughs> that's just hard to keep the momentum going. Well, I was at C2E2 over the weekend, which is the big Chicago Comic Con, and sure Sherlock was huge there. There were people dressed as him. Yeah. Posters galore. Got even Stan Lee said he was a fan of the show. <laughs> That's cool. So that was pretty sweet. Lucasfilm clarifies Star Wars Expanded Universe. For many Star Wars fans, the Expanded Universe, or EU, is beloved and an integral part of the Star Wars mythos. Star Wars books, comics, video games, these all fall under the umbrella of supplemental content. Basically anything that isn't the movies or Star Wars The Clone Wars. Even though those are full too. However, since Disney's buyout of Lucasfilm in 2012, there's been some concern over the EU. That is, what's still considered canon. More importantly, are old stories in danger of being overwritten? This is especially pertinent for fans of the New Jedi Order books, which will presumably overlap Star Wars Episode 7, 8, and 9. Earlier this week, Lucasfilm released an official announcement addressing the future of the expanded universe and how that will impact new Star Wars entertainment. Explained Lucasfilm President Kathleen Kennedy, we're set to bring Star Wars back to the big screen and continue the adventure through games, books, comics, and new formats that are just emerging. This future of intertwining 
interconnected storytelling will allow fans to explore this galaxy in deeper ways than ever before. As for how this will play into the new Star Wars trilogy, the press release added, in order to give maximum creative freedom to the filmmakers, and also preserve an element of surprise and discovery for the audience, Star Wars Episode 7 through 9 will not tell the same story told in the post-Return of the Jedi expanded universe. While the universe that readers knew is changing, it's not being discarded. To note, this is our first total confirmation that the Star Wars Episode 7 will not use EU storylines. However, the release continued previous EU content will remain in circulation, presented under a new banner called Star Wars Legends. Lucasfilm also clarified that only the six previous Star Wars films and Star Wars The Clone Wars should be considered canon as far as previously released material, though EU elements, including characters and worlds, could be incorporated into canon stories, which occur in the prequels and the Clone Wars, and will be the case with the upcoming Star Wars Rebels animated series. This is exciting, but also disappointing for me, as I loved many of the stories told in the EU in the hundred or so novels, comic books, and young adult novels I have read and read as a kid. Now, none of that, or most of it, will no longer be canon. That is disappointing. But at the same time, I'm excited to see new stories told in the Star Wars films and not have any idea what is coming. I'm guessing this is how most Star Wars fans are feeling just about now, where we loved the EU, but we're kind of excited because there's going to be all brand new storytelling. Right, and, and the good thing is we're still going to see a continuation of Luke and Leia and Han's story. That's true, but I'm a little concerned that some of that great storytelling, especially the Timothy Zahn series, is just no longer a part of the Star Wars canon. You know, it it happened, but now it's like just (sighs) legends that, you know, not really true or something like that. I I really think the storyline's going to draw upon things from those stories, but it's not going to be exactly that story. Well, they did say they're going to incorporate some of of the characters from the EU, and so I think they're going to go and find the ones that fans absolutely love and then try to incorporate them into the films. You're going to see Amara Jade probably show up. You're going to see possibly the Solo twins and possibly Anakin Solo. And, you know, those kind of things could show up or they could not. You know, they they might not go the route they went with Chewie. They might go a different route. You know, there's all kinds of different things that could happen. And that's fun, but it kind of seems like a waste of time that I read all those stories. <laughs> but there's a lot of people opposed to some of the things that happened to some of those characters. Well. That's true. That's true. And some of that will be retconned and that, that's a definitely a good thing. Like the Chewie thing, that really ticked a lot of people off. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who right. hasn't read any of those books, but you know what they did with the Chewbacca storyline really ticked some people off. So this is a way to kind of undo that. Great. And I, I trust who's taking over the movies. Yeah. And I thought episodes one through three were kind of hurt by us knowing what was going to happen. So I kind of like a blank slate going into stories. Sure, sure. Fox considering X-Men on TV. In a recent interview with Collider, X-Men Days of Future Past writer and producer Simon Kinberg spoke briefly about how 20th Century Fox was considering expanding its Marvel properties to TV in the manner that Marvel's done with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the upcoming Netflix streaming shows Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, and Luke Cage. We're still in this place of figuring out what the future of the franchise will be, Kinberg stated. 
But when you look at S.H.I.E.L.D. to some extent and what Marvel is doing now with Daredevil and other shows on Netflix, it makes sense to tell some of these stories in TV, partly because there's just not enough screens to do all these characters, and also because the serialized format of comic books is better suited for TV. Because because that's it. Every week you come back to the same character, different story. And in comic books, every week it's the same characters, different story. Fox's Marvel Vault includes X-Men, Fantastic Four, X-Force, Deadpool, and New Mutants. But unlike S.H.I.E.L.D., an X-Men series with each character possessing a superpower would have to figure out a way to manifest itself on TV with a reasonable budget. And that's the challenge, Kinberg said, of the affordability. I think what they're seeing now is that the proliferation of new kinds of visual and special effects, there's a way to make these stories that don't cost $300 million every time you have to make a huge movie. This could be a great thing for Fox's Marvel properties to sort of do the Marvel Cinematic Universe thing for their Marvel products and properties. Regardless, more X-Men sounds good to me. Sounds very cool. And we may not get a team. We may just get a focus on one character with one of these shows. That's always a possibility. I think seeing the X-Men as a team would be the more fun way to see it. Right. But, uh, yeah, I can see it being just a focus on a specific character or a few characters, for sure. Because I don't know how you're going to get the bigger characters on there. Yeah, you know, like, like a Storm or a Wolverine. Or right, without like totally recasting, and that would yeah. be unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. Remaining episodes of Beware the Batman will air in July. If, like the Cape Crusader himself, you're a nocturnal creature, then you might welcome this news. The long-delayed second half of Beware the Batman Season 1 is finally coming to TV in a 3 a.m. time slot. Reports have surfaced, and IGN has confirmed with Adult Swim slash Cartoon Network, that the series will start airing on Adult Swim as part of the Toonami programming block beginning on May 10th at 3 a.m. Eastern and Pacific. Essentially, as fans feared, the remaining episodes of Beware the Batman are being burned off quietly. The first 11 episodes which have aired already on Cartoon Network will kick off the new time slot starting on May 10th with the remaining unaired episodes number 12 through 26 beginning on July 27th at 3 a.m. Two of those episodes have already been available on DVD. Bat fans will recall that Beware, the latest series to feature The Dark Knight, was abruptly pulled from the Cartoon Network schedule last October with no explanation from the network. Double episodes of Teen Titans Go! were aired instead during the DC Nation one-hour programming block. This worried viewers, rightly so as it turned out, who were still feeling burned by a similar situation involving Young Justice and Green Lantern, the animated series, the previous year. Those shows did go on to air their remaining episodes in normal, non-Creature of the Night time slots, in fact, though neither Neither series was picked up for a new season. Clearly, the same fate awaits this Beware the Batman. Uh, this is very unfortunate, because yeah. it was a decent show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Terminator Genesis starts filming. Terminator Genesis, the fifth film in the Terminator franchise, began principal photography this week in New Orleans. The film, directed by Alan Taylor from Thor The Dark World and Game of Thrones, stars Amelia Clark, also from Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. as Sarah Connor, Jason Clark, Zero Dark Thirty, as John Connor, and Jai Courtney as from A Good Day to Die Hard as Kyle Reese. Oh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course. Meanwhile, at the Arnold fans tweeted out a picture of Arnold on set wearing a track jacket and very shiny pair of leather pants. I'm actually looking forward to more Terminator and think this film sounds very interesting. I personally enjoyed the last film and really, except for the third one, which I thought was alright, have loved every film in this series. So I'm excited for more Terminator. Is this a reboot? Yes. Okay. Yep, it's a reboot. Okay, that makes sense. So like 
Why is Sarah Connor in this? <laughs> no, it's it's definitely a reboot. Okay. Netflix raising streaming subscription price for new users. Netflix will raise the price of its all-you-can-watch streaming service by one to two dollars per month. The charge goes into effect within the next two to three months for new members in the U.S. According to TheWrap.com, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings and CFO David Wells delivered the news in a letter to investors earlier today. The letter said, "Our current view is to do a one or two dollars." increase depending on the country later this quarter for new members only this is the first rate increase since Netflix's disastrous attempt to spin off its streaming service into a separate company in 2011 that move was so universally disliked Netflix reversed its decision never actually implementing the plan the current price hike looks much more likely to stick though it was first tested in Ireland where according to the company it had little impact the new rate has long been expected by media analysts due to the rising costs of licensing and producing content for the streaming service. Lest existing members think they're getting a pass on this increase, though the letter also included the following ambiguous language. Existing members would stay at current pricing, for example, $7.99 in the U.S., for a generous time period. Not all that surprising news, though, but still disappointing when you have to pay more money for the same service. Yeah, bummer. Amazon Prime to exclusively stream HBO favorites, including Sopranos, The Wire, and Deadwood. Amazon Prime Instant Video has inked a deal to be the exclusive online-only subscription home for a vast array of HBO programming, past and present. As part of a landmark partnership starting May 21st, Amazon Prime members will have unlimited streaming access to all seasons of The Sopranos, The Wire, Deadwood, Rome, Six Feet Under, Oz, Eastbound and Down, Enlightened, and Flight of the Concords, plus selected seasons of Boardwalk. Empire, Treme, and True Blood. Miniseries such as Angels in America, Band of Brothers, oh, John really Adams, not. The Pacific, and Parades End are also part of the deal, as are original movies like Game Change, Too Big to Fail, and You Don't Know Jack. Numerous documentaries and original comedy specials as well. Episodes of more recently debuted HBO shows include Girls, The Newsroom, and Veep will become available on Amazon Prime approximately three years after airing on cable. This deal does not include Game of Thrones. That must be mentioned. It does not include Game of Thrones. Yeah. But in addition, HBO Go, the pay cable channel's authenticated streaming service, will become available on Amazon's Fire TV service by year's end. So if you if you have HBO and HBO Go, you can watch it on the new Amazon Fire TV. Can't you watch programs like Sopranos and whatnot on HBO Go? I don't actually know because I'm not an HBO Go subscriber. I, I am. I should look at it, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, this is an interesting move. It's a great deal for Amazon. Absolutely great deal. I'm an Amazon Prime member, so I will check this out. But yeah, this is this is a good deal for Amazon. It's huge, huge because it's stealing it away from Netflix. Yeah, and that stinks. Because <laughs> we have to get both. So yeah, yeah. there is that problem. But in a sense, I'm an Amazon Prime member because of the great. I, I do all my shopping on Amazon, so being right. a Prime member makes all the sense in the world. I was a Netflix subscriber for a very long time. I'm not currently, but when they start having stuff that I can only get there, which they do, but I haven't gotten into any of those shows yet, like House of Cards and things like that. Uh, when I do decide to do that, I'll have to become a member of both as well. Right. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right. Well, let's get right into the big discussion of every single one cover episodes where we talk about it. Game of Thrones with the episode Breaker of Chains. <sighs> Thank you. 
Tyrion ponders his options. Tywin extends an olive branch, Sam realizes Castle Black isn't safe, and Jon proposes a bold plan. The Hound teaches Arya the way things are, and Danny chooses her champion. This week's Game of Thrones started off by adding another suspect to the mystery, behind Joffrey's verdict, that I didn't think of last week, Littlefinger. But in my opinion, it makes sense that this smug little weasel is behind it, more so than anybody. Because one, he hates Tyrion. Got two, framing Sansa for the murder forces her to stay with him. Nico, is this a good theory to make on my part, or am I just spreading blame a little bit because the guy gets on my nerves? No, Dan, that's a great theory to have. But don't think that only one person is behind this murder of the king. To kill the king, it would most likely take a vast conspiracy with multiple conspirators involved. Joffrey had many enemies from his foul treatment of just about everyone, so anyone could be behind it. Sansa and Tyrion are suspected of being the culprits so far. Peter Baelish, or Littlefinger, was made to seem responsible for it in this episode. But you'll notice he was not present at the reception, so at least someone else slipped that poison in the cup. I do not wish to spoil any of the surprises, so I will just say you are on the right way of thinking for this mystery, but I think you may be thinking too small. Also, your observation of the fact that Littlefinger is taking advantage of the fact that Sansa is being blamed for the killing to keep her close and indebted to him is very astute. Remember, Peter had a thing for Catelyn Stark, Sansa's mother, and in the books, Littlefinger remarks at how much Sansa reminds him of her mother at that age. In fact, when the betrothal between Catelyn and Brandon Stark, Ned's older brother, who was killed in a battle and the reason that Caitlin and Ned ended up together. When that when that engagement was announced, Peter challenged the much older Brandon to a duel for her hand. Brandon defeated Littlefinger easily, but he was spared in compliance with Caitlin's request. Just some additional creepy background, but background that will be important in Sansa and Littlefinger's story going forward. So I want to throw that out there because this is stuff we learn in the books that you haven't necessarily learned in the, in the story. Well, Littlefinger's just creepy. Yeah, just a little bit. Well, this this death, Joffrey, fits into his master plan that he boasted about in earlier seasons. So I I see how it works. Yep. That he's he's either set it up or is a part of it for that reason. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great, great way to be looking at this because you want to think, who hated Joffrey? Well, just about everybody hated Joffrey. But who hated him enough to maybe kill him? Yes. Or who gained something by him dying? That's really where the question is. You know, a lot of people could benefit from it, but who benefits the most? Right. And with that, going back to King's Landing, I don't really think Jamie benefited too much from this. No. At least in my book, because really, Jamie, who is actually Joffrey's father, kind of took me a step back on his likability for me this week. I mean, I hated him before. He grew on me through last season. He's grown on me through the first three episodes. But I really think we're still at this point where he may still need to pay some more retribution that goes beyond just losing his hand for having an affair with his sister. Got taking it to the extreme of basically raping her in this episode. If this continues, I really think Jamie may need to pay for this with his life. But if he makes the right decision to help Tyrion, kind of hold the oath that Brienne believed he owed to Caitlin Stark of protecting Sandra, then I probably could buy Jamie just losing a hand. Guys, learning his lesson. Nico, did you think this scene was a step backwards on Jamie's development towards becoming a more likable character? Absolutely, Dan. But once again, this was a contrivance of the show. In the books, Jamie was still on the roads back to King's Landing when Joffrey was killed at the wedding, and he goes to find Cersei okay. in the Sept, mourning Joffrey, and they have consensual sex on the mother's altar in the Sept. But afterwards, Cersei calls that 
folly, saying that they must be more careful with their father now in the castle. He responds that they should stop hiding their love and get and get married. Even if Pullman will lose the Iron Throne, he would still be heir to Casterly Rock. But she sends him away in anger and can't believe he would ever consider that. This turns out to be the last time he and Cersei share intimate relations as their relationship begins to fall apart after that. Jamie is changed by his experiences on the road and just everything that's happened to him since he left King's Landing the first time. And that scene between them begins some of the scenes of bitterness between these two we've seen so far in the show since his return in uh, on the TV series. I'm not actually sure why they made the difference here in the show or what purpose it will serve. All I know is the internet exploded on Monday about that scene between them and how inappropriate it was. But in the books, it was still inappropriate, but less rapey. Yeah, and I don't know why they need to make it rapey. Yeah, I don't know. That that makes no sense. God, character-wise or story-wise. Because I think I thought it made him dislikable and hurt the transformation. Yeah, it really... I don't know. I, there is a George R. R. Martin made a response to sort of the out outcry. I didn't get a chance to read it, but I heard yeah. that there was one. So that might be worth. If you were really disturbed by this and want an explanation, there right. is you can you can search for George R. R. Martin's response to this episode and well, read, the, read through it, and maybe it'll make more sense for you. Well, the way it was done in the book was right. That, that's what I have to say. Yeah, yeah. I would have rather had that. Yeah, I mean she she goes nuts after after the fact because he wants to get married and denounce the throne and you know come out as just them being in love and she you know she's too ambitious for that. Right, because that's fine. Yeah, because it, it doesn't make Jamie seem cruel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and while this was going on, Tywin took steps to set up a trial against Tyrion, called with the intent of try to rid himself of his son forever. But I think where Tywin slipped up is by appointing the Prince of Thorne because one of the judges. Because even though they didn't see eye to eye, a mutual respect seemed to be there between Tyrion and the Prince when they confronted each other in the season premiere. Because I'm thinking Tyrion's going to use this maybe to get the trial to go in his way. Nico, does this plot point have something to do with what you mentioned a few weeks ago about the Prince and Tyrion being friends? If circumstances were different, that is the prince the key to Tyrion winning his trial. To your first question, yeah, that's kind of the same thing I was talking about with Tyrion and the prince. Sort of, they could could have been friends if circumstances were different. Now, the second question is a difficult question to answer without giving too much away. Yeah, the prince and Tyrion seem to have made a connection or have a mutual respect for each other, as I just mentioned. But in reality, even if the prince votes Tyrion as innocent, the other two, Tywin and Mace Tyrell, will vote him guilty. So it seems no matter, not to matter. But you are correct in making this connection between these characters and there being more to come out of that. Yeah, there's definitely going to be something out of this story arc. Maybe in the trial and maybe in another storyline as well. I don't want to give anything away. Just be prepared for something completely unexpected with Tyrion and the Prince of Dorne. All right. Okay, uh, speaking of Tyrion, I really like that set of honor he was playing with choosing to save Podrick's life, even though it completely screwed over his cause. In my opinion, this makes me believe Tyrion may be one of the few characters left standing at the end of the story because he hasn't really made a colossal sin that warrants his death. Sure, we've had a lot of horrible characters in this show who we believe didn't deserve to die, but there are mistakes that explain why those deaths happen, especially in regards to the Red Weed. 
the red wedding. Nico, do you think Tyrion's willingness to always make the noble sentence? Because something that may keep his life safe throughout the Game of Thrones series? Dan, I think you're looking at the reasons for the deaths of many of these characters from the wrong perspective. George R.R. Martin is like a serial killer. He kills without logic or reason, except it makes sense in his vision for the story. So in that sense, just because Tyrion is one of our favorites, he seems one of the most noble and smartest characters in the series, and he seems he should survive to the end, George R.R. Martin could at any time decide he needs to die, because it works in his story. I'm not saying he is going to die, but you need to be aware that honor and lack of mistakes take a backseat to drama in the series, and Martin could kill any and all of our favorites before the series is done. So don't try and put any logic to who survives and who doesn't, because there is none except for the story Mark has his head. That is the only logic that matters in this Cause, series. Because I feel like every time before someone dies on this show, they make one colossal screw-up or admit to something that was a screw-up. That has been the case on a lot of the ones on, on the TV show, but there have been deaths that just, because it drives the story forward. So is that things coming? That's things coming and things that okay. have happened in the past that maybe weren't focused on in the book. Okay. Yeah. So maybe this could apply to the TV show, but not so much the book. I think the TV show does, they're not changing anything really in, in that sense. George R.R. Martin does sort of, there are some times where it definitely, like Rob made some mistakes, you know, and yeah. he was ultimately, his his decision to marry the wrong woman, uh, Jane Westerly and yeah. whatever they called her in the TV series I don't ever remember it was so different um, but whatever when he married her that was a big mistake and that lost him the war essentially lost him his head but right. so in that sense your, your theory absolutely makes sense but there were others that died and had not made a colossal mistake had not done anything you know they just were killed in battle or they were defeated or it made sense you know so yeah. to progress things forward and you know so I, I think looking at it from a logical standpoint is probably the wrong way to look at it you just have to be ready for anyone to die. Because in this series, it's funny, everybody jokes on the internet, but it's really true. George R.R. R. Martin is the most notorious serial killer in fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> he just kills everybody. And it doesn't make any sense unless you're in his head. Right. So. right. Well, when we did Dragonstone, we got more of the uh, more of the Onion Knights. Guys, Stannis gave him an ultimatum. Get me an army or die. God, I was glad to see Stannis' daughter come through on an idea for Sir Davos through one of their reading lessons because it made the connection between these characters that much more enjoyable to me. Nico's the Onion Knight plan. Eventually, go and you give us an upcoming episode. Heavily focused on his character. And what did you think of the scene we had this week? Yeah, the Onion Knight will have some very important scenes that stem from the plan that he had with Stannis' daughter and the conversation he and Stannis had this week. Stannis complained that he did not have any gold and Davos came up with an idea for getting the Iron Bank involved. This will prove important in the future and will help both Stannis and the Onion Knight in the coming war in the North. So definitely important little, little thing mentioned in this episode. It's going to make a big difference later on. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, scene was so short, but wasn't a whole lot to say about that. You know, we get more of it. Yeah, I it think we're going to actually probably take a little bit of a break from them for maybe an episode or two where we won't see any Stannis or at least very little right. Stannis in the Onion Knight as they start to make preparations and then once they have an idea of what they're doing or how they're going to go about it or we see Davos leave and go towards trying to find that army then we'll start getting some more story from them but up until that I think we're going to take at least an episode or two break from Stannis in the Onion Knight. Okay. I mean there's a lot 
of other stuff going on. Oh, yeah, for sure. I just like the characters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next up kind of began two character focused stories that started out as fun, kind of had me laughing, and then ultimately kind of had a letdown. Uh, and, and I don't want to say letdown as a, the plot line went bad. It just kind of became much more dramatic than I originally thought it would end up. Okay, first off with Sam, we got a music scene of Billy fighting a youth that he wanted to protect her. But then a nice moment kind of left me feeling sorry for Sam as he decided to move Chili to a town near Castle Black because he didn't feel he was capable of protecting her on his own. Nico, did you also feel sorry for Sam because he put himself down this way? Kind of, should I be having this feeling that something is going to happen which will end up boosting Sam's confidence? Yes and yes. Once again, this was a contrivance of the show and was handled differently in the book. In the books, Gilly remains at the wall and is present when the conflict with the wildlings that is we all know is coming happens. She was never sent away by Sam. However, in the books, there was talk of Sam sending her to his family and pretending she and the child was his so his family would look after her and the baby. But that was scrapped as to do so, Sam would have to admit he broke his vows and it could come back on him and, you know, they could have punished him for it. I guess we'll both see where this story goes with Gilly and the Moltown. But you're right that something is coming for Sam and his story and yeah, you definitely need to feel a little bit sorry for him because he he loves Gilly and absolutely loves her and wants to protect her but he's also a man of the Night's Watch and he takes his vow very seriously so he can't do you know, he can't be what he wants to be to her. So he wants to just protect her and keep her safe and allow her to grow up and raise her child. So that's his primary goal. Seeing her go to Moletown and be safe was good, but at the same time, it kind of broke his heart. Well, and it kind of showed his lack of confidence at this point. Yeah. So that made me feel like, okay, something's coming. You know, he's definitely going to have his moment and he's going to have things come. Things are going to be to boost his confidence, but it's not necessarily in the way that you think something's going to happen and things are going to change for him but he is a coward he is a weakling he's not going to all of a sudden grow strong and be courageous he's going to he's have his, a long bottom yeah but but maybe not such a transfer physical transformation to a strong person but mentally he's as sharp as they come so right. just be ready for his confidence to be improved in that moment. all right good as for the other emotional letdown story. I enjoyed Arya trying to domesticate the hound because they were asked to stay at the home of his daughter. I with this, my hopes were brought up for Arya and the hound story to turn into a vigilante tale. It's going to last, my hopes went up in smoke. Guess the hound decided to rob the farm. Saying he and his daughter would be dead before winter anyway. Nico, does this mean I should abandon call my hopes of Arya's story going the route of the vigilante? No, but as long as she is with the hound, her story will not be the one you're hoping for. If she is ransomed to her aunt in the Vale, then her life could change in one direction. If she somehow escapes or is separated from the Hound in another way, her life could go in a completely different direction. Of course, as I said earlier, George R.R. R. Martin could decide to kill her and or the Hound off because Martin is the most notorious serial killer in the fantasy world. So don't expect Arya's story to go the vigilante route as long as she and the Hound are palling around Westeros together. It's just not going to happen. Okay. So I'm not saying that story doesn't happen or it's not a possibility, just it's not going to happen if she's still with the hound. I guess I'm not as cynical as George R. <laughs> I, I'm not like the crazy serial killer person. I don't have homicidal tendencies. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
people love the stories he tells. Just they get so emotionally invested in the characters, and then he kills them off. And I mean, people have been known to curse him. Okay, that's what makes it exciting. Or, yeah, absolutely. It, it makes some of the best storytelling out. But <laughs> if you're not cursing the 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 writer and then praising him in the same breath, then he's not doing his job. And yeah, I, I fall. I'm falling for his game. Yeah, definitely. I'll just go with that. And uh, getting off the emotional roller coaster, we return to Castle Black, where word gets to the Night Watch. The wildlings are tearing the countryside, and they're basically outnumbered um, against them if the wildlings attack. On that note, I think it was intentional for Sam not to be there while all this takes place, because I think being in a different location allows him to get the drop on the wildlings if they attack, boosting his confidence in the process. Nico, are we on the verge of seeing Sam's big time to shine? Yes, like I said before, but unfortunately for you, not in the way you are thinking. Sam's time is coming, but it will be different than you expect, and it will play to his strengths and not to him becoming something that he is not. Remember, as I said, he is Sam the Slayer, but mostly because his brothers of the Night's Watch are mocking him with that title. He's not going to be the big brawny or you know strong fighter. He's super smart, and that's sort of why he was able to kill that Night or that White Walker was because he was smart and just got lucky. <laughs> so right. things are going to go Sam's way. But not physically, not in a physical fight. Things are, his strengths are his ability to read, his great memory, his, you know, really smart smarts. He's going to be intellectually important to the fight, but not necessarily the actual fight. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. We'll get him in on this. They'll bring him in somehow with that, that thought or philosophy. And finally, Danny's story was addressed and they bring action into the episode. With us getting the classic scene of the swashbuckling hero impressing the girl in his dreams. With the Dario winning a fight against Marin's champion. But the big thing I took away from this scene is the sense that the people of Marin don't want to be free from slavery. And that they are more scared of Danny and her army than their owners. Nico, am I correct in thinking that this is one of the hangups we talked about, which keeps Danny stuck in Marin for a while? Uh, no, no. Danny did what the masters of Marin never expected and really could not even fathom. She spoke directly to their slaves and told them that she was there to free them. All they needed to do was want to be freed. Okay. The launching of the broken collars of slavery from her freed followers by Trebuchet was perfect in starting the uprising in Marine by showing the slaves that all it takes is them standing up and wanting to be free. The slaves greatly outnumber the masters in Marine. I think it's something like three to one. So a slave uprising is a real danger. Now the hiccup, the hiccups I was talking about with Dan come later after she has attacked and won the city. Okay. It has more to do with ruling the city and her new subjects, but first we get to see the great battle that is to come with them winning the city. We all know she's going to win the city. She has. Right. So, I'm not spoiling anything there. Just this That's season, we're going to see something it. wrong with this scene when there really wasn't. No, no. The, yeah, there's no, the slaves want to be free. They just okay. are so afraid of the masters and there oh. have been previous uprisings in Mirene and it always ends with the master still in charge and the slaves dead. So they're definitely afraid of it, but now they see this freer of slaves coming and she has a giant army and they start thinking, this could work, this could work. And the launching of those broken collars by Daenerys was, was brilliant. It's exactly what the slaves of the city needed 
to see. And the fact that she addressed the slaves and not the masters in her declaration, that was important as well. So you will see that her mixed different sort of battle tactics, each city she wins, is very important. Now, we're going to see her win the city in the coming episodes, and then she's going to have to actually rule the city for a time being, and maybe that's what is the major hang-ups that I was talking about. Okay. All right. So with this, Nico, is there anything I missed covering from this episode or was important to mention in regards to the books? Yeah. Tywin offering Oberon a spot on a small council and the promise of revenge against the mountain in exchange for being a judge at Tyrion's trial is important that we talked about. We, we did talk about it a little bit, but there were still a ton of things going on that we didn't see, like the mentioned investigation of Bronn and keeping him from Tyrion, or the mystery men approaching Pod to get him to turn on Tyrion. Is this all Tywin's doing or is someone else trying to fix the game? Cersei's a good guess for that, but maybe she's too much of an obvious choice since she's the only one actively screaming for her brother's head. It's worth mentioning that Tyrion was smart enough to know that. Even though she had escaped the city, Sansa wasn't poisoned. He was smart enough to realize that that just was not her. Also, before we end, I'm going to delve a bit into how the show is diverging from the books here, though not discussing events that take place past this episode. In the third book, A Storm of Swords, things were a bit more ambiguous with the death of uh, the king. When Tywin spoke to Oberon in this episode, he mentioned that some felt Joffrey might have simply choked, which was definitely a possibility in the book, but not so much in the, in the show so far. It was more up in the air. And the mystical connection to Stannis' black magic leech spell, which I was happy to see Stannis himself mention here, but only briefly, was more emphasized in the book. But watching the show, we heard Oberon, an expert, confirm that it was a poison and we saw that Littlefinger was likely behind it, much more cut and dry in the show than it was in the books. Not saying that everything is as it seems, but those viewers searching for fast answers probably got what they were looking for. I think that to the detriment of the storytelling and mystery presented in the books. Also, Littlefinger's plot to use and then kill Pordantos was pretty clever because he knew firsthand that Sansa didn't take him up on his offers. Again, only in the book. He offered her a bunch of times to try and save her, but she refused because of the things that were going on. Though this time, without her dreaming of being married to Loras, because that was a possibility at one point. She may have just gone with Dantos willingly here. Whoever the killer is, though, be it Littlefinger or somebody else, they could not have intended to frame Tyrion, since that would have involved being able to predict Tyrion would be forced to pour Joffrey's wine at the wedding reception. If that hadn't happened, Sansa, having fled, would probably have been the only one taking the blame. So, when trying to come up with the killers, try to devoid yourself of thinking of the frame job of Tyrion as part of it, because that is not that is not part of it. Also of importance, Elena telling Marjorie that the next one should be easier when she complained about her two attempts at becoming queen going horribly wrong. That's important. As it turns out, Marjorie's queenliness is in question since Joffrey never ma- made it to his wedding night. To solidify her place and the truce with the Tyrells, Marjorie will be betrothed to Tommen when he comes of age. So that's also important going forward. Finally, the choice that Jon Snow makes and presents to his brothers of the Night's Watch is important. The decision to go to Craster's and kill the Rogue Knight's Watch brothers is important and also shows Jon Snow's tactical mind. The Watch will have to take care of the traitors lest Mance Raider gets to them first and finds out the wall is pathetically guarded by only a hundred men. Mentioned twice in this episode so you know it's important for it. That's about it as far as I can remember with the importance of this episode. Okay. Yeah. So I mean there was a lot of stuff that was really important but you know we, I think we covered a, a good portion of it in our discussion. Yeah I think so too. Okay, with that we're 
we're going to go on to talking about Once Upon a Time, where we're going to briefly cover episode 18, The Jolly Roger, and follow that up with our discussion on episode 19. After Selena steals Regina's heart, Regina casts a spell so that she can speak across the realms to her dead mother Cora to discover the truth about why she abandoned Selena, and Belle stumbles across what Selena's ultimate, ultimate endgame is. Mean, in, meanwhile, in the fairytale land that was, young Cora uh, is duped by a man claiming to be a prince and finds herself alone and pregnant, but a chance meeting, but a chance meeting with a real pr- prince could lead to uh, lead Cora to the royal life she, she's always uh, craved, but she must keep her pregnancy a secret or risk losing everything. I'm I'm going to start right away by saying this, that one of the best casting jobs on this show ever has been Rose McGowan as uh, the younger version of Regina's evil mother, Cora. Um, Even though this was just her second episode, I loved it a lot. And uh, I think she... It's the way she talks, she how she yes. moves, all the hand gestures, all the way she interacts with people. That is just so much like Barbara Hersley, but it's just in a younger capacity. And it's I think it's almost freaky cool how she manages to do that. But yes. um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, Rose McGowan is a very um, knowledgeable actress. She has quite an amount of uh, film knowledge. She's a huge film buff. I think she did a show on amc or tmc or something like that involving film history so she's got the acting chops to pull off a performance that that's that's this good oh, so yeah. it's really kind of cool to see that and what this arc really explained to us a lot is it was ca- kind of like a parallel parallel with regina and snow white because you look at it princess eva who by the way is an effing itch yes. in the flashbacks i can't i just can't understand how does this brad turn into the motherly and warmful and kind mother that snow white has in that episode from season two that's like the, the, your dream mother from every book you've ever read well it, it explains why she scolded snow like she did when she was being selfish yeah in that episode and go on can i liked how snow said something must have happened for her to change her tune on things so I'm interested to see what that is. Well, I, I'm interested to see if they're actually going to continue going going with the story arc and the flashbacks because we know how much time do we really have with this show when it comes to the flashback. You know, we a lot of right. uncer- uncertainties right now. But I, yeah, I, 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 I'm to me just seeing everything coming coming full circle. Why Cora became the mother she became. Why she abandoned Selena and everything. It, it was a nice way to wrap it up. Yes. And look, if this this was the last time we ever saw McGowan as Cora, you know what? I, you know, I that's fine with me. And I, you know, I've never felt this much sympathy for the Cora character as as I never did with right. um, the the older version. Even though I think Barbara is an amazing actress. But at the same time, I think it justified a little bit more with where Snow was coming from on things um, with killing Cora mm-hmm. and her whole conflict of um, with Regina. I mean, it made us buy that maybe these two can become friends. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And I think that that's a really nice aspect to follow. And speaking of Regina and Snow White, this was a really good episode yes. for these two. And now Emma and Hook fans are going to hate me, you know, but one of the reasons why this episode was so strong, aside from the Regina and Snow White focus and the Cora focus and so on, was because they didn't focus on the Hook and Emma right. relationship. I'm sorry, guys. I just don't want to see it happen because I don't care. I don't care about it. I could care less about it. I don't think they have and- that chemistry that everyone is raving, raving about, and I don't think it's interesting. I'm sorry. And that's why we really didn't cover last week's episode. Also because we were a bit busy. Yeah, we were also busy, but... 
it, it made us not really motivated to want to cover it because it just, I, I don't know, it, it's, it just doesn't feel right to us. And, uh, you know, some of that stuff, I mean, I, I want to give the writers credit for trying to make it work with the whole hooking up, you know, to kiss Emma thing. But I just think it would have been better if they did some of this with Neil. Cause I don't know if that's an actor thing or the fans or what the deal is, but I thought things turning me off. But again, Regina is keeping me watching this show. Cause I'm still going to keep watching it to see where things end up for her. Yeah, because honestly, guys, it's getting to a point where I'm. There, there were times where I actually felt that I was starting to tune out because, like, look, I, I'm Jennifer Morrison and the guy who plays Hook. They're both amazing actors. I think whenever they are doing individual characters for these two characters, I, I think it's much more entertaining. I, I. But the thing is, I just don't see the big fuzz about these two being as a couple. I don't think yeah. that's something that I would want to see. It's like, okay, imagine like it's not like how I look at. Felicity from um, from Arrow, like they have chemistry and it could be a fun dynamic to explore. But we just know that in the end, Oliver is going to hurt her. With this situation, I don't see any chemistry in that way. Right. I see them being as I see them being allies better than being lovers. And um, also, here's the thing: when you're starting to make, uh, make a big deal out of a relationship instead of the actual storylines of this show, then you know I, that's yeah. that's not really how you're supposed to look at a show. If you want a relationship, just go to Tumblr. I, I don't know. I agree. Yeah, and, and I know Tumblr has become this big joke that, you know, oh, that, that's where shippers are hanging out. Look, it's not, there's nothing wrong being a shipper. Hey, I love making up the names for shippers. I, um, hey, I, I came up with Lolliver and Lumi for Arrow when no one else bothered to do it. Uh, but now for some reason people are calling Laurel and Oliver Lolliver, but hey, whatever. But overall, I really enjoyed this episode. McGowan for the win. Simply, just yeah. gonna put, put it like that. Rumpel, Lana Perella. What? Lana Oh, but she's, where's that Emmy? Yeah. Seriously, where's that Emmy? It's going to Ming Nan Wen. Oh Lord, I don't want to. If they have to fight against each other for that Emmy, oh Lord, oh, the ABC network is going to be like ruined or any, something yes. like that. But um, but yeah, guys, we're not many episodes left. We're getting close, closer and closer to. No. And with this time travel business, all sorts of wacko things could happen. Maybe once, an end hook Emma? Once upon a time in days of future past. Oh, jeez. But, but like, that's what it could happen. I know. With, with, let's, I don't know. And it's interesting because now we have three episodes left to go. Technically four, but because they are going to put episode 21, 22 together as a two-hour event, which is kind of, kind of cool. How yeah. are we going to wrap this up? I think we're going to get a monster what-the-heck cliffhanger. And I hope that doesn't say cancellation afterwards. But there's a strong possibility. I don't. I don't know. I think they've been doing fine ratings, but I think people should start trying to figure out whether or not the, the show can go on for fifth, fifth season. But um, I would say kill Rumple, end him this season. And that's been not, that's not because it's, it's not because we don't like him. We love Rumple, but the thing is, uh, they've they, run out of things to do with him. And now he's just being used as a doll. Yeah, uh, that's what that's what uh, she said. And I think it's a waste of the actor's talents. Yeah, exactly. Like just I don't now know. he had a good scene in the episode. Where he tried to get his dagger back by kissing her. Yeah, that was kind of weird. But uh, oh, it was weird kissing a beautiful woman. Then yeah, totally. That's it's it's, it's weird, huh? Right. Well, yeah. No offense to Robert Carlyle, I don't find him as someone that's attractive. All so right, guys. See you. Yeah. See you next week. Curly <laughs> All right, Andy. Thanks for joining us for that once upon a time discussion. As usual, it was a lot of fun. So with that, now Kamika's going to come back to cover. Yeah, we're going to cover this week's episode, the penultimate episode of the following, entitled Sights.
Joe launches his master plan, and Mike and Ryan try to stop him. Meanwhile, Claire must make a decision, and Luke and Mark have to decide what to do next. Much like last week, let's kick off this week with the thing we all should be talking about. The death of Emma. Sure, we knew it was a possibility, but I did not expect it this week. I thought the series handled the Claire and Emma scene very well, although as soon as Emma went through that window, I had a feeling we might get a little John Carpenter's Halloween situation where she'd essentially come back from the dead one last time and try and kill Claire again. As I said, classic horror storytelling device. I feel a bit strange that Emma is the one who was killed here one episode before the season finale. The following uses red herrings and twists so often that any kind of payoff we get can often be relegated to moments way beyond their expiration dates, but most people, or me at least, would have figured Emma was a long-term investment for this series. I know Andy and I had discussed that that earlier this season that we thought Emma and Joe would survive to next season and Lily's orphan cult would be defeated this season. Amen. I guess that it makes sense that it comes down to Emma versus Claire since one is obsessed with Joe so much that she can't imagine him having had feelings for anyone else. Although, Joe is a master manipulator of Emma, and in this episode when he expresses his love acting like he's going to cry, only to show the camera a completely distant expression. I thought that was great. Yet, since we've only had Claire in part of this season, and there hasn't really been much in terms of building up her and Emma as opposing forces, Emma's death just seems premature. Although I did like that we got a reminder of what Emma and Claire shared before the events of the following and at the beginning of the first season. So Andy, we knew that Emma could die, but were you surprised it happened here in the penultimate episode of season two? Ding dong, the witch is dead. She's not coming back because she's been boring the whole season. No, here's the thing. You know what? Put her, I'm glad they put her out of her misery because this is not, you know, this whole season, I haven't said it a lot because I kept, you know, thinking that, oh, it's fine. We're going to get the Emma that we all knew and loved. Well, loved. Okay, maybe that's a strong word, but the Emma that we thought was a big badass because she was an awesome villain last season. But no, here's what Emma, Emma has been doing this whole season. Uh, um, get, just give me a few uh, hours and, and Nico. Mm. Joe, I should be with you. Joe, why can't I be with you? Joe, be with me. Joe, F with me. Joe, 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 Joe. Oh my god. You know, we you know we, we don't have a lot of strong female characters on this show, sadly. She was one of them, but this season it was just like Joe's alive. <laughs> Like, I'm sorry, like, it, it's been bugging me. I, I've been trying to keep a cool on it. I'm trying to be professional here, being a critic here. But I'm thinking, like, okay, you know what? Maybe these, these three last episodes will, you know, finally bring out, out her dark side that we saw last season. She will stab people. And look, I'm I'm not encouraging violence here, people. But when, it's, when it comes to TV, I like when we can get strong characters, whether it's a hero or a villain. And Emma was a strong villain, but now it's been like, Joe, 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 Joe. Oh, I'm dead. I don't, look, I haven't actually been really happy about Claire coming back either, to be honest. I, I know I wasn't here when uh, when Nico did the episode about Claire's return, but I, I've been so bothered by her return, and I'm like, I hope she dies as well. I don't like, I, look, I don't like, uh, what's the name of that reporter? Carrie something. Yeah, Carrie Cook. I don't like you either. I, I like, can we just, get, either you, okay, you keep Claire, but you make her something strong, or, I don't know, just, Ryan Hart, like, Kevin Bacon, just turn gay and kiss Mike. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't see that happening. But... Yeah. No, but okay. Okay. Going back to the actual question now, five minutes later. Yeah, it was a bit premature, actually. I think that if they should have killed her, if they would have killed her off, it should have been in the season finale, not this episode. Uh, I think that we already had so many things going on with, uh, you know, with the church and so on, that I felt that we didn't need to see that death this episode. We, I would have been fine seeing it next week and being like, yeah, the ding dong, which is that, yada, yada, yada. But... I know what you think. Yeah, I thought obviously I thought it was premature. I think it would have been better as you said in the finale and been maybe the cliffhanger thing. Like last last year it was did they really kill off Joe and of course they didn't, but that was the big cliffhanger. This time it could have been did they actually kill off Emma and everybody would have suspected no, no, she's going to be back. Somehow she survived and then we get to season 3 and she's actually dead. That would have been the way I I could see them going with it, but they went with it here, which makes me think maybe Claire is going to die in the finale and that's going to be the big cliffhanger because last Again? season yeah she's gonna die for real this time though she won't go to uh, tahiti no no oh crap marvel she, agents are here gonna kill me now sorry right so after emma's death claire seems to get away unscathed from her stupid plan to attempt to kill joe all by herself although her escape from the marshals was pretty awesome with her tear gassing her marshal escorts and then macing that one guy that tried to restrain her yeah. pretty badass stuff actually mm-hmm. i agree but after emma's death claire gets captured by the evil wonder twins as mark and luke <laughs> i'm sorry oh, sorry mark and luke randomly show up at the same place claire went to secretly meet with joe and kill him and then they capture her after the dispatching of emma there is not a logical reason that they would be at that abandoned resort looking for joe it just doesn't make any sense so andy my question for you is how is the show going to account for the fact that luke and mark just randomly showed up at the secret meeting location of joe and claire just as claire kills emma is this just a contrivance of the episode to move the plot forward or will they actually have an explanation for this inconsistency i think they will have a plot uh, they will have something in next week's episode to explain why they were there look this is a very sometimes not a very smart written show sometimes you know we've seen it with the fbi and the, the cops yeah. and and so i don't know why i'm whispering but um i'm just um i'm sure there's something but if there's not then shame on you kevin williams saying yeah you know you're absolutely right the the show the overall theme is very smart very smart oh yes some of the day-to-day stuff in the writing is really just not up to par you know it is subpar and they make some stupid mistakes we let it slide because we sort of are expecting the you know big things to be good and the little details were were a little more forgiving in a show like this because it's let's be honest it's a little crazy but a little we want i want some of these little inconsistencies to be tightened up maybe in next season i'm hoping season three they can tie up some of these you know tighten up some of these inconsistencies and maybe make a better written show i don't know if that's something we should be looking forward to i think we're going to get more of the same and just have to love what we do love about this show and kind of 
push under the rug the things that we don't. I don't know. That's all I can really say about that. But I do think you're right that there are some technical issues with the writing. Yeah. Anyway, the Kingston Tanner stuff this week was much better as it tied last week's episode to this week's episode with Kingston being tied directly to Joe by allowing himself to get captured in order to attempt to save his son. Tanner killing himself rather than killing his son or forcing his son to kill again by killing him was a noble sacrifice and really threw Joe off his game for a moment. You could see it in Joe's face. He had to scramble and call him a coward, but you could see that the idea of someone sacrificing themselves for anyone else just did not register to Joe. It just didn't make sense why he would do that. So Andy, what did you think of the Kingston Tanner story this week? Was it better? And was Kavanaugh's story and use better this week than what I complained about last week? It was a little predictable, sadly. But here's the thing. For me, I because we know that he's going to be a main character soon on The Flash, I knew you know, that his arc would probably be wrapped up in this week's episode because if, if I'm thinking uh, production-wise, I'm sure he either did, um, either he went back to production for Flash then or he like you know he was just about to begin his scene or something like I. I know he's been shooting stuff uh, in Vancouver, yeah. But um, no, but I agree with you. It was much better used this week, and uh, I, you know, I love Tom Cavanaugh, so I will, you know, I will watch him, and I will enjoy whether it's you know not strong writing or whatever. Um, I like that he can make that accent uh, because <laughs> I, I'm still so used to hearing him on Scrubs as JD's brother. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it was better used, and um, and overall, this was. Like I, I know he, you know, he had a nice arc, and it was it was set, it was graphic, seeing him cutting his own throat, yeah, and the devastation on his face when he sees his son, like, like I, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you ever want to become a father, Nico, but like, what, like, how would you react if you saw a video of your own son or daughter killing someone? Yeah, it would it would have been sh- shock and horror, same as what we saw in this episode. But at the same time, you would still do everything in your power to protect them and know that that's not who this person is, and they were forced to do this by a, a psychopath. Yeah. Or at least, you know, in this situation, that would be the case. Really quick, going back to Tom Cavanaugh, if you want to see classic Tom Cavanaugh, you should watch the series NBC's Ed. Oh, so good, so great, and he's the star of that show. So just little Tom Cavanaugh viewing uh, assignment. And then, and then you will see him next, this upcoming fall on CW's, in, starring as Dr. Dr. Harrison Wells on, yeah. on CW's Flash. I'm excited. I, I really like Tom Cavanaugh. I like him too. Like That's why I got so excited when they cast him. Like I never saw him being part of a comic book show, but hey, this, you know, I like him. So, you know, I'm open for it. Finally, since it was such a big part of our discussion last week, Andy, what did you think of the way they handled Mike's killing of Lily the week before? The, the way they handled it in this episode Essentially, Mike, Ryan, and Max all lied to the detective in charge of the case. So what What did you think of that? Also, that was kind of predictable because I knew that it wasn't right. like they're gonna report him to the you know to you know to the cops or the FBI. Like they w- they wouldn't lock him up. But but I'm just so scared that they are gonna make him a villain next season. That he's gonna go rogue and Ryan is gonna realize that I this is my fault. This kid like can, can we just go back and look look how happy he was in the pilot? Like how right. how geeky he was that he would he was gonna get to work with Ryan. Ryan Hardy, aka Kevin Bacon, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, yo. Right. Like, now he's just, oh, oh my god. Like, 
Oh my god, you know what this is? You know what this is? This is Batman and, J- and, and Robin with Jason Todd. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of that. That's a great analogy because it is. It's sort of the the corruption of Robin, essentially, when he... Uh, well, I mean, part of that was due to the Joker. Jason yeah, Todd. Yeah, Jason Todd, who okay. gets killed by the Joker. Uh, and comes back as, yeah. Red Hood. Red and Hood. That, but there was a time when Robin started becoming more violent as, the, as you know, the hero. And Batman, um, you know, all didn't know what to do with him. And then... Then he died. Then, yep. <laughs> then he died. Then he died. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm I'm curious to see how they, they will actually solve this. But it's not going to be next week. It's I think it's going to be a season three arc, and I would actually like to see that. Do you think they're going to put him in any sort of pseudo jeopardy in the sense that the police detective is going to continue to investigate this shooting, and or did they just wrap that up in a neat bow, and it's going to be more the psychological effect of killing her that's going to affect him? Is that yeah, how you see I, it? Yeah, I, I think the, because hey, Reinhardt is one of the most respected cops or you know agents of uh, in the FBI and so on. so I think that if they say if they if he says that Lily tried to kill him and he fired back I think the cops are going to be like you know what okay you know you know we can trust him he w- he wouldn't lie Okay. All right. But yeah, I, think- I thought it was wrapped up pretty easy, and I think you're right. I think you're right that the psychological effect of that, and maybe the realization that he's sort of betrayed some of the the ideals that what got him to be an agent in the first place, may come back to haunt him in the in the future and in next season. So that may become. And then a- Joe kills him, and uh, then uh, Raza Ghul brings him back with the Lazarus pet, and he puts right. on a red helmet and becomes red. Oh wait, we can't do. Sorry. Sorry, wrong, wrong, wrong media, wrong media. All right. Well, anyway, that's our discussion for this week's penultimate episode of the following. Thanks, Andy, again for joining me. You're welcome. And I hope you all will join us next week for the season two finale episode, Forgive. Praise Joe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now I'm back in the show. We're going to cover an episode of Warehouse 13. That was somewhat predictable. Getting one storyline and a lot of fun. But the other storyline gave us a big revelation about the show that was very interesting. While Pete and Micah travel to Washington, D.C. to investigate artifact-related drownings, they meet two members of their former organization, the Secret Service. Meanwhile, Artie sets out to find out what happened to Claudia's sister. If you're someone like Nico and I, who have wanted Pete and Micah to hook up before this series is through, this episode of Warehouse 13, get that issue on the head. Got pushed into the idea because they met another Secret Service team who became secretly married. Now, with the two main love interests, got a show being inspired to hook up based on seeing it work with another couple is a concept that's no stranger to tell But this time around, I enjoyed watching the plot line. I've seen what I've talked about because it came with the same stuff of Pete and Micah, two characters that were really wanted to see get together, finally going that direction. Nico, do you think this episode was a strong indicator that Pete and Micah are going to hook up before the series is over? Especially when characters like this is Frederick are even trying to bring up the idea. Also, what do you think of the storyline with the Secret Service in general? Can it be Grace of the Presence of Cora, the Avatar? I was glad that the story finally seemed to head in this direction, but I also felt like the inclusion of the other Secret Service partner team getting married was an overly heavy-handed way of dealing with or sparking it this week. I know Micah has issues because of the loss of her former partner who she was in love with, but needing to see it work with another pair seemed to be unnecessary for Pete and Micah. Rather, I would have rather had what Pete did in the end of the episode to be the spark, where he told Micah that if she ever wanted to talk about there being more than just friends and partners in their future, that he'd be up for that discussion. That and not the other partnership is all I think she needed, and the inclusion of 
of the other partners was, as I said, almost overly heavy-handed. Because there was enough to happen in the series before. Exactly. To support that. Exactly. You don't need... I know they were trying to like show a switch be flipped in yeah. her head, but Pete saying something, that was all it needed, because that was when the switch right. flipped, in, or you know, maybe flipped in the end, in that last scene, you could see something come over her face, but I don't know, you know? I, I, I just don't think it was necessary. Of right. course, you know, Janet Barney was, her being in the episode was great, because we're Korra fans, but, you know, it, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think this is Frederick even involved, got the beginning of the episode. Right, and I, I, I don't think she was necessarily saying Pete, but she was saying, you know, it, it's it. okay if that sort of thing was going to happen, because right. maybe that's, maybe she thinks that the reason Micah isn't considering going forward with anyone is that she thinks that her job at the warehouse is too important. And I think Mrs. Frederick was trying to say that having kids in a family is, is okay as a warehouse agent. You can do that. That's all right. You're not excluded from right. doing that. And I think that was just what she was saying. Not necessarily Pete, but I think ultimately that's where everybody wants this to go. Even the it's, like, it's like, it's okay. You could have a life. Yeah. You, it, she was saying, you had a near death experience. That'll go out of the life. Yep. That's what I thought. Because on the flip side of things, there's a pretty good storyline where a huge addition was added on Claudia's backstory. Because Artie used the Brad's baby shoes to explain what had happened to Claire. Because I've got to say, for a show that's fun and lifelong, for the most part, the death of Claudia's parents that they had become an artifact of Zest Claire. Was probably one of the most horrific and violent deaths on the series. But maybe for me, that came from what? One of my favorite characters on the show. See her parents die. Anyway, the constellation that we took from this story, because the awesome concept of Claudia, being able to identify warehouse artifacts, even at a young age, got a much deeper understanding of why Artie tried so hard to be a father figure for because he was there for her right after her parents were killed. I also liked it out finding out what happened to her real family, including not just Artie, but the other members of her surrogate family that she feels closest to, meaning Steve, because he went with Claudia and the memories cover Comatel's sister, inspiring this season's quest to bring Claire back consciousness. Nico, I know we were predicting Claire to be an evil version of Claudia that she would have to face in an epic series finale, but are you okay with the writers for the wrong of Claudia seeking a way to get Claire, kind of a coma instead? Also, what were your thoughts on the revelation this episode added to Claudia's backstory? Dan, this was so much better than the idea we had with the two sisters being going up against each other and her sister being evil. This yeah. addition to Claudia's backstory was so good that I almost wish we had seen it in maybe season two or three and had more time with the fallout that I expect to see when her sister is saved. If they are able to do so in the next few episodes, which I assume is going to happen. I think seeing Claudia attempt to save her sister will be great in the next few episodes, as I've mentioned. So definitely, this was a better story than what we came up with last week. Also, I did love the way they tied Claudia to the warehouse even more by showing her innate ability to spot artifacts at an early age and deepening the Artie and Claudia, Claudia father-daughter relationship by showing him be the one who rescued slash took care of her in the wake of her parents' death as kids. My only question is, where was Claudia's brother in this episode? Why was he not present when all this went down? I think that that's a little bit of a huge continuity error that I hope they address at some point. Was he at boarding school? Was he old enough to be at college already? I don't think, you know, the age difference between them was not great enough that she would still be that small and he would be in college. 
Right. You know, so I'm wondering like where exactly he was, if he was somewhere else when this all went down. But why was he not at all fo- mentioned in this episode? Yeah, it's a missing part of the explanation. Yeah, because they could have hired a younger actor. Yeah, exactly. If they could get the guy to play Joshua. Exactly. Yeah, kind of like the story. I thought it was well done, though. Yeah, absolutely. This was just something I noticed that didn't seem to make sense to me because yeah. they did everything else so well. Why forget Joshua? Because that car scene was brutal. <laughs> yeah, that was. And they rammed against the tree. Because like, wow, that's a lot for warehouse. Yeah, yeah. But I think it needed to be that way to get the story really fired up and going. It's going to bust us into it. Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, if this is the final arc of the series or one of the final arcs, then you got to super trade. Gonna make it great. So I can't wait to see this where it ends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm excited about this. I mean, I've been excited about this season regardless, right. but this just made it even more exciting. Well, like, Claudia is such a fan favorite character anyway. Right, right. That to get this is great. So anyway, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to an episode of Castle that set up a good theme for this week's podcast. But I don't know if it was the greatest castle episode ever. Because an interesting idea, but I don't know if it worked for everybody. So let's talk about the castle episode. That's some of these shit. When construction workers find the body of an infamous New York mobster who disappeared in the 70s, Beckett and Castle try to solve this three-decade-old mafia hit. Unfortunately, their only witness is a man who thinks he's still in the 1970s, so to uncover what he knows, they must play into his delusion and party like it's the last days of disco. With this week's Castle, I've got to commend the writers for trying to do something different with a time period throwback history by having the gang at the precinct make present day look like the 70s to jog the memory of the suspect, rather than going the usual route of using flashbacks with the main cast taking other roles of suspects from the past, like in Castle's throwback episode to the 1940s. However, regarding this tactic of recreating somebody's present day, it's actually working. We're going to let you guys decide on that one, because the audience I watched this episode with felt it was way too hokey. Personally, I was amused by the recreation of somebody's concept, because I just accepted that this was a fun episode, where the cast was just letting loose and having a good time. Plus, the cast of this show being so enjoyable, they could honestly make anything work, especially with some of the fun moments we got in this episode. Like with Lady taking on Pam Greer, iconic somebody's look. Ryan and Estevino's starch teeth kind of hutch routine. Okay, Castle making him captain of the 70s version of the precinct, much to Beckett's dismay. I also left out Castle twisted making the precinct look like the 70s get to the project that would keep his mother out of the wedding. This was just another example of classic Castle mysteriousness that makes us can't get enough of watching Nathan Pillow get this role. Nico, what were your thoughts on this episode recreating the 70s state? Did you view it as something that was over the top? Kind of goofy way of giving Martha something to do with this episode? Dan, I actually really enjoyed it because it was a fun gimmicky episode but the cast sold it so well that I had a lot of fun with it nonetheless. Okay. Like, Lainey as Foxy Brown was great. And Espo and Ryan as the two Starsky and Hutch knockoffs was amazing. Especially when Espo tried to pull off the hood slide and ate it hard. Okay. Sure, the concept was far-fetched and unrealistic especially when Martha got involved with the precinct but so what? I had a blast. <laughs> it was fun and you could tell the cast was having fun with the theme and that really sold it for me. I guess it was just I was in the right mood on Monday night when I watched it for some fun this week and this episode of Castle just worked for me because of that. I think it just hit me on the right day at the right time and I just had a blast. Good, good, I'm glad, yeah. I, I felt the same way. Most of the audience I was watching with didn't feel it and that's their opinion in entire life. But I had fun with it like you did. Good. As for the mystery, I enjoyed its classic mafia feel with having suspects named things like Louis Miller and including actors who are no strangers to media opponents. Gangster themes formed the media, especially during the 70s, such as John Polito, who played this week's Stuck in the 70s movies. Although, with that being said, I did care too much for the mystery Skull Cub with a preview that John Polito's witness character was gay. 
I don't have a problem with gay characters being on television. It's good. I think Castle might have done it with me. That had a gay stuff in the past. But I just didn't feel that it fit the 70s or gangster genre. Because if this episode depicted a realistic version of the 70s, I would have bought in the secret of being gay. But since it was more of a parody on the 70s screen, I just couldn't buy it because homosexuality was not really talked about at home. Or within regular society. It's cut off for that matter. You go over your thoughts on the mystery and its outcome. Dan, I thought the mystery was actually pretty interesting. Except I was not all that impressed by the murderer. As for the witness being in love with the victim, I was actually okay with this this week. I mean, the whole idea was that they were secret lovers and that he was going to marry a woman to hide the fact that he was gay because it was not accepted in the mob world. Thus, it made perfect sense to me why the witness and the victim would have to hide their love for each other and play it off as best friends, while the victim married a woman that made business sense and not love sense. I can see that being a realistic story, at least the idea of having to hide it being a realistic story but i guess i could see your point as well is you know it was you know maybe that we really see more now nowadays on tv but that's okay because it's today's sensibilities sort of you know castle being 70s oriented and so i was okay with i don't know it worked for me that's as much as i can come up with okay i don't know i can see your point but it it worked for me so i was okay with it yeah i feel that too all right cool now we're gonna move on there wasn't a whole lot to say about this other than it was fun we're going to move on to Supernatural episode that really had some great development for one of its supporting characters. So let's talk now about Supernatural episode. Alex, Andy, I'll let this stand. Sheriff Mills calls Sam and Dean after she kills a vampire who attacked a prisoner named Annie. They discover Annie was kidnapped by a family of vampires who use her as bait, lure in humans they can then feed on. Sheriff Mills tries to rescue Annie from her captors, but finds out the hard way that family always comes first. Despite its really weird title, this was one of the better vampires come supernatural, because it tackled the debate on if a vampire retains any form of their humanity after being transformed. Now, this most notably applied to the feeling of love, because Annie, the girl featured in the system, truly believed the vampire mother, who kidnapped and raised her, loved her so much that she was willing to transform into a vampire. However, once this leads to Winchester, to the vampire family's front door, Annie heartbreakingly realizes her vampire mother, wanting her to change, was out of self-preservation rather than love. Nico, what was your thoughts on the struggle Annie had to go through between her loyalty to her family and her human morality? Was it something you found compelling? Could it make for a good episode? Yeah, Dan, absolutely. I thought it was a great theme for this this episode to tackle and thought the debate was handled very well for both Annie and also for Sheriff Mills. Indeed, I thought the focus this week was on Sheriff Mills, and the episode clearly wanted to give her an arc where she could connect with a kid that would be close to her son's age if he had survived, and then there would be grief and feelings and emotions and all that stuff. It's not a bad idea, but at times, there was sometimes when it felt a little forced, but compelling for sure, but a little heavy-handed at the same time. Like I said, it, it felt a little forced at times. Still, a fairly good episode, and if nothing else, it was insanely fun to watch Sheriff Mills be a badass and take the head off of that vampire leader. Yes. And yeah, the debate and all that stuff led into that really good storytelling. And like the going back between Annie's struggles and Sheriff Mills stuff, that was all really good. I really enjoyed it. Well, I like the Sheriff Charlie Mills character. God, the actress is great. Yeah, yeah. And so was the actress that played the mother, the vampire mother. Yeah, you see her on television all the time and I don't know her 
from what I recognized her from was that movie of Little Big League. Nice. Do you remember that one? The yeah, one? I do. Some of the Sun's Twins. Yep. That's where I recognized her from. She gave a good performance. Yep. Good. You know, as I said, another character that went through a lot of debate. Good this episode with Sheriff Jody Mills. Who I was glad to see back again. Got protecting her precincts with the skill of a hunter. By doing that awesome scene, Nico just mentioned that decapitating a vampire. Got the opening act. Nico, were you glad to have the sheriff back again on the show? Show off skills as a hunter. I, I was. I've enjoyed Sheriff Mills and especially since she became aware of the supernatural. The fact that they progressed her to near hunter level skills this week was a little surprising considering only a few seasons ago the Winchesters would have never allowed or trusted anyone else to dispatch vampires. Indeed, they right. almost seemed to be able to kill the vampires really easily this week, even if they did get to drop on them in the house in that one scene. But as I said, this episode seemed to focus on J.D. Mills, and I enjoyed it for that focus and getting to see her be a badass. That was fun. Yeah, she's helped them so many times that it shows you earned their trust. Yeah, I just think, I think like it. vampires were harder to kill three or four seasons ago, though. <laughs> Right, but these aren't like alpha vampires. That's true, that's true. This is just a regular nest. So we'll just roll with it for that. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Or we'll just assume that the, the Winchesters have become so adept at killing vampires that it's just super easy. Right, the mark of pain makes it easier to kill vampires. Apparently. Yeah. Although, just because Sheriff Mills has the skills of a hunter, that doesn't necessarily mean she has their bleak outlook. Because she got in a pretty big argument with about what to do about Annie. Because the vampire using her as a leader made the brothers believe she deserved to die like a monster. Could Sheriff Mills felt otherwise as Annie began to fill the void left by her dead family? Because I loved how this made the vampire mother a great antagonist in the episode. Because she was also trying to use Annie as a way to replace family she had lost. Nico, what was your thoughts on this connection between Sheriff Mills and the vampire mother? Also, did you like when this story ended up with the sheriff becoming Annie's surrogate mother because it made up for her always getting wrong? Get to the deal with the death of her family and Bobby? You know, I liked how Sheriff Mills and the vampire mother were essentially foils for one another. Or rather, the vampire mother was a foil to Sheriff Jody Mills, who was the hero of this week. While Sheriff Mills and the mother of vampire both had lost someone and became attached to Annie because of it, Sheriff Mills wanted to help and protect Annie because she reminded and made her feel her buried emotions for her dead son. While the vampire mother was using Annie as a replacement for her dead daughter Alex, even going so far as to rename her Alex when she kidnapped her. That was all really good stuff, and I really enjoyed the fact that Sheriff Mills and Annie ended up together while Annie detoxed on vampirism, because I felt like they both needed each other, and it was a mutual healing opportunity. It also was nice for Mills to get a win in the end, since she usually gets the crap kicked out of her emotionally. So yeah, I was definitely on board for her and Annie ending up together, because Sheriff Mills needed that win at the end. Well, that was always the thing that kind of irked me with Bobby's death, because that, that arc wasn't wrapped up yeah. between them. Yeah. And so this kind of resolved that for me. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So I was very happy about that. Kind of got glad she got the win. Kind of if this is the last we see her, I'm good with this. But I think we'll see her one more time. I think we'll see her at least. I'm hoping. I just hope the vampire daughter doesn't get killed, because that would stink. Yeah. Because she's right back where she started. So maybe they're a team. That would be real cool. They become yeah. a hunting team? Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. There's your supernatural spinoff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because if they'll like that on the mix. Because I know the Knicks is really tired of come out Sheriff Mills. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're big fans of her over there. And so, rightfully so. Rightfully so. Absolutely. You get to this, you need that spin off. <laughs> Want to see it. And finally, this episode briefly touched upon the Mark of Cain. Can Nancy Dean's bloodlust? Was Sam mentioning his secret choice? 
killing one of the vampire mother's sons. Nico, do you think this is a topic that we'll be focused on much more? It's definitely next week's episode. Of course, it could be saved for the season finale. Dan, since next week is the backdoor pilot for the spinoff set in Chicago, I don't think it will oh, be the focus good. of next ep- the next episode, but rather right, will be the yeah. I think it's going to be the major plot point in the three episodes after that, leading up to the finale. Just a quick note on that: this season will have an extra twenty third episode due to the backdoor pilot being added, so we are getting one extra episode of Super Seven. Okay, next week's is going to be a very interesting discussion. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to see. <laughs> okay, it might be a watch or not, too. We'll see. Yeah, you know, I think that definitely needs to be at least one of the topics we talk about, whether or not yeah. we're going to watch the spinoff. So I'm going to say expect maybe a little longer section. We'll see. We'll see, we'll see where that goes. But uh, now we're going to bring Andy and Wu into the party. Yep. They're going to talk about Glee. So here they are. Thank you, Mr. Rashtek, and thank you, Mr. Schmidt. My name is Wuz Kim, and alongside me is the returning Andy Babak. And we're here to talk to you about this week's episode of Glee. What is the official description, Andy? Opening night. The night has finally arrived for Rachel's Broadway debut in Funny Girl, and she has very special guests in town to support her career-defining moment. In the episode, and that's all we have to say about the episode. We'll see you guys next week. No, Andy and I were talking off microphone, and we both kind of agreed that this episode was really good in spots, but another, it was like, okay, man, um, is that totally wrong what I'm saying, Andy? I don't know if I think it's meh, but I think it's more like, it's just, I don't you know, I will say Glee has lost a lot of it, a lot of its magic, and I, I think it's, you know, I, we know why. Some of the reasons we know why. Some of the reasons we don't. But, um, I, I, it was, a, it was a solid episode to me. Like, it was, I had a few issues, but mostly I was, uh, I was happy with it. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go to the negative stuff first, and then I'm gonna go to the positive, just because that's how I roll. Um, I really didn't think the Sue storyline was necessary. And to, and to that effect, I really didn't think Mr. Shu showing up for that one scene to talk to Rachel was really necessary either. Yeah, I think these two characters are pretty much done in the show, and like, I, I, I hope that they are really considering just letting go of these, some of these characters in the next season, um, have them back for the finale, like, you know, maybe like two or three episodes throughout the season, but like, seriously, like, it, you know, how could Sue just drop everything and leave her the school if she's a principal for now and just be like, I will go to New York, yeah, which I hate. Yeah, my, my biggest problem, my biggest problem with this episode, and it's funny that you, you, you bring up letting the characters go, I mean, we were, like, complaining last season about how just badly they were treating Gemma Maze and how the, um, Emma character was seemed to be, like, like, swept under the rug, like, Will and, Will and Sue make that ten times worse in my opinion. I see what you mean. I mean, at least, at least when Emma went away, she had a story and a reason to go away. Here, you know, they're almost like forcing them in. But I, I didn't really have a problem with Sue going to New York. I just really didn't see why she needed to. And I talked to you about it off microphone. Like, I understand in TV there's an A story and a B story, but it, the B story is just there just to be a B story. Then why do you have it? I think the reason they brought her back was so that Rachel could get that rant out. Of her system. Yeah, and I think that's lazy writing to me. Like I understand, I understand why you do it, but there's better ways you can execute that. And th- th- that's what I mean. It's like the and I'm I'm a little critical of the writers here. It's like you're just trying to get through the rest of the season. It really does feel like that. Oh yeah, and I'm you know, to me I'm I'm happy that we're actually only three episodes. You know, we only have three episodes left of the season, so that we can have a you know a long break from Glee for. 
four or five months because I think that they really need to you know, make sure that this final season is going to be uh, a good one. And all we know about season six is that there's going to be a time jump between the finale and the season six premiere. Another one. Great. Um, let's get into some positive stuff. You may not have liked it. I loved it. How Tina was just so, so unaware of Rachel's anxieties. Yeah, that was kind of funny. And it just showed that she's still a bloody mess. And, oh, I met this cute guy. Gay, 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 gay. He's not gay. Gay. I, I loved it when everybody told Tina to shut up, though. That was probably my favorite, one of my favorite things in the episode should have happened earlier <laughs> yeah i one one more thing before we wrap things up because like again we really have nothing really to say about this episode here's I mean, my major point i want to say okay i'm uh, glad that rachel won you know what i even though i said that you know this is probably gonna bite her in the ass when she decided to you know just quit niata but you know what i'm happy that she got her dream but is it gonna stick? Yeah, it doesn't mean that the show's gonna be successful just because of this one good review. Well, if it's the New York Times, I'm... Well, well, you're right about that. Like, any any person in theater will tell you, if you want your show to succeed, you get a good review from the New York Times. Like, if you don't get a good review, then the show's career is pretty much over. But, like, here's here's one thing that I did like did like about the episode. Like, one of the strong things was um seeing Rachel naked in that chair. No, I'm just kidding. Well, kind of. Um, the the fan the fan shadows I thought were very good. I thought, yeah, I I like that too. It, um, it was. Yeah. I love Rachel in bed and everybody trying to cheer her up, and she snaps Sam's guitar strings. That that was kind of what the heck, and she's <laughs> like. She just looks at him and like it's the scariest look Leah Michelle has ever given. And because you know, hey, Leah Michelle can't really scare me. So it was just hilarious seeing her just cutting me out slowly and she's like It's those eyes, sir. It's those eyes. Those eyes that can be very like sweet and loving and, and caring. But then the and what and to bring that up, and this is the last thing I'll mention before we give our rating, one of the best acting performances in this episode to me was when Sue left in the middle of, like, near the beginning of the show, and then she sees that, and she uses that frustration and anger and puts that in the character. Great performance. I just love seeing her scream at Sue and be like, you know what, you're pathetic, you know, we, nobody cares about you, get the hell out of my house, because yeah, I'm gonna be with my friend. Yeah, and I, I know that guy that played her love interest, Sue's love interest, in... The episode, he's been in a bunch of British stuff. He actually played a character in an episode of Friends, I think, years back. I like that, I like the performer, I just didn't like the, the storyline or the character. I give this episode like a 3.5 to a 4 out of 5. It was nice to see our buddy, our buddy Max, um, Karofsky, even though it was only a dream sequence. So awesome to see him. Yeah. Um, what, what's your rating for this episode, sir? Kind of the same. And the music, I'm, I know we haven't talked about the music for the past episode, but it's just that to us, it's, Glee is more interesting right now because of the, the arc, even though it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the last two seasons, the music has not been, I mean, it started in season four, the kind of going down in music quality and really has continued into this season, other than maybe the Beatles episode or the quarterback episode, but other than that, like, the, the focus is more about these characters, not about the story anymore, which I don't really know how feel about that because one of the things i liked about glee initially was the music but uh, we will see you guys next week for episode 18 
backup plan. Ooh. Ooh. I wonder what that could mean. We'll see you guys next week. Let's take it back to Mr. Rivetick and Mr. Smith. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. All right, and now we're back with our sitcom stuff. And we start off with Modern Family. Uh, that's an episode that took us down under to Australia. The title of Australia. The entire family tags along as Phil fulfills his mom's wish for him to return to his roots and visit the country where he was conceived, Australia. Unfortunately, Phil's attempts to embrace his native land are met by a lot of rejection. While Jay and Claire let work eat into vacation time, and Mitch and Cam get reacquainted with a old friend they can't stand but is now a big-time celebrity in Australia. There was a lot of fun to have in this episode, with Phil Dunphy, or should I say, Crocodile Dunphy, in this case. Got out Australia hated. But my favorite comedic moment was when Luke lost his shorts in the ocean. And a topless girl comes up and says, Don't worry, little boy. I'll help you find your pants. The water's very clear down here. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this episode that went down under? Dan, there was indeed a lot to enjoy in this episode, and I couldn't pick just one, but my favorite comedic moments were Mitchell and Cam laughing at Australia once being a penal colony and that they were going to visit the bush. Everything with the comedian Reese Darby as Fergus. That was great to have him on the show. Yeah, Reese Darby is great, but having him as Fergus, he just was allowed to be his wacky self and that was so much fun yes all the ways that uh, australia kicked phil's ass oh same as you luke losing his suit and the topless lady searching for it in the really clear water that was great and the kangaroo punching phil in the face was my favorite of the things that beat up phil this week like i said a lot of good stuff this week that i just couldn't pick one the thing with the kangaroo it got ruined for me by the commercial yeah so i already laughed the commercial so it wasn't funny when i saw it that is the one good thing about about not watching live television for me. I rarely see commercials. <laughs> well, I saw it by accident because I was watching a basketball game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. So, the, the only time I watch right now is the Hawks games. So okay. I'm, I'm lucky because also that's on NBC or NBC family of networks. So I don't get spoiled. Go, can I make a sidebar? Sure. <laughs> Go Hawks. <laughs> Go Hawks. Big I win. Big win. Us. So Cover St. Louis, we came back. Yeah. How about good, that? Good stuff. Good stuff. Looking good. All right. Right, let's talk about the Big Bang Theory. Cut the episode that anything can happen. Reoccurrence. All started with a Big Bang. When Sheldon tries to be spontaneous, it leads to unexpected friction between Penny, Amy, and Bernadette. Meanwhile, Raj seeks Howard's help in preparing for a date with him. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory would have to be the reveal that every time Howard catches Bernadette, good telling a lie to him. She has to wear a Catholic schoolgirl outfit to make it up to him. Can all that paid off at the end of the episode by Amy showing up to the apartment dressed as a Catholic schoolgirl? Can Sheldon saying, you know, unless you've got gravity on Blu-ray underneath that skirt, I don't know where you're going with this. Come, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment? For this week's Big Bang Theory. My favorite comedic moment from this week's episode was all the jokes and recaps that Howard and Raj were making about the horror film. Okay, so in the last half hour, we've seen a woman make out with a fetus in a jar, a guy gets sawed in half and sewn to a fish, and the brutal dismemberment of a rotisserie chicken by my mother, and the comment Howard made about Emily. What difference does it make? She could have a freezer full of ex-boyfriend's body parts, and you'd still go out with her. To which Raj responded, I do like that the ex-boyfriend is out of the picture. Good stuff this week from Raj. Well, because then Raj is going along with watching the movie because it turns her on. Right. <laughs> yeah. I kind of think we should watch the movie. Well, it kind of turns me off. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> exactly. All right. So with that, Nico, you're going to take it away now with our Airways Rundown section, right? You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's home for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know drama. 
We're going to kick things off this week with the Americans episode entitled Marshall Eagle. Both Elizabeth and Philip are infected. When their mission goes, are we? Meanwhile, Stan's life continues to deteriorate. The spies on the Americans do so much sneaking and snooping around for high-tech plans that it's easy to forget the spiritual ramifications of the Cold War. Ideology is what really was at stake, so it's justifiable that fighting for what felt like a losing side might have caused someone to question the big ideas behind all the trouble. This episode promised a mission, but what it delivered was a collection of much more introspective journeys. Stan and Sandra shared a tough look at their relationship Philip and Elizabeth dealt with the bloody aftermath of the Contra plan, as well as Paige's financial devotion to Christianity, and Gad prepared to testify with his job and freedom on the line. It was an hour well spent highlighting how those tasked with saving the world keep going in the face of futility. The septic plan to get onto the base where Americans trained Nicaraguan soldiers worked like a charm, except for a grunt who got his throat slit and the bound truck driver who died from exposure. Elizabeth also racked up two bodies in this episode but it was Philip who found himself most affected by the unnecessary deaths. Just last week, he had spared the driver, acting as the good cop, when Elizabeth wanted to kill the guy. And the fact that even though they attempted to spare him, the driver became yet another casualty in an increasingly murky war. The season is really going into the psychological effect this lifestyle is having on the Jennings, and it's not pretty. Early in the season, it was Elizabeth who was still in a semi-PTSD mode, and now Philip is finding it increasingly difficult to justify the murders he's committed as part of his job. We saw him try and quiet that guy who spotted him, but not only could he not, he had to kill him in a very up-close and personal way by slicing his throat. The fact that he had to shoot another man and then found the trucker whose life he'd specifically spared was dead only added to how screwed up Philip was for the remainder of the episode, with Matthew Rees expertly conveying a man who was just so damaged at the moment, and that damaged feeling informed his interactions in all parts of his multiple lives. At this rate, I do wonder just how long the Americans as a show, which is renewed for season 3 right now, can go. It feels like we're seeing more and more reasons Philip would get out of this lifestyle. Obviously, there's still plenty of materials to be mined from him being forced or feeling obligated to stay, but it will be interesting to see how he gets through this. The fact that he was aiming his anger at Paige was a little upsetting to see, and then got real scary when it seemed like he might kill her pastor or at the very least badly hurt him. It was good to see Philip not cross that line, but still unsettling that he came so close. Also, Elizabeth at the AA meeting was one of those great moments where she, this show can jostle and disorient us. The most obvious reason for her to be there was for a mission, but I have to admit, I did wonder briefly if maybe she either was a recovering alcoholic or simply found some solace from those meetings. Even when we learned that, yes, she was there to gain the trust of a woman who was working on the assembly line of one of the companies developing the stealth planes, it was notable that Elizabeth used some very real history with her and Philip to gain that trust making the lines between what is real and what isn't increasingly blurry. Agent Gad sitting down with Arcady was a simple yet very cool moment. It was amusingly odd to see those two sides of this series coming face to face like that, though Arcady sure didn't seem phased by Gad's threats, did he? The back and forth between the US and Soviets over the stealth technology is a compelling undercurrent this season that's beginning to grow while the murder mystery is still in play, and I wonder if Stan may find something the Jennings have not yet. But the Americans continues to 
really pack a punch with its emotional content, and this week's focus on just how much this job is getting to Philip was incredibly involving and upsetting to see play out. Another great episode of this series that, while I'm not sure how long it can go, I'm hoping for at least five good seasons. So far, so great. Alright, next we're going to move on to my review of the amazing BBC American clone series Orphan Black with the episode entitled Governed by Sound Reason and True Religion. While Allison struggles with Annalise's death, Ed Cosmo grapples with worsening symptoms of her mysterious sickness. Sarah and Liz are helped to find Kira, and it's shocked when she knows where the trail leads. One of the biggest mysteries of Orphan Black's first season is finally starting to be revealed now. Mrs. S was intentionally a bit of a sleeper last year, but not anymore. In this week's episode, Mrs. S got to shoot a gun, stab someone, and proves that she has more back-channel skills and secrets than we could ever have imagined. This episode gave her a pretty cool spotlight and certainly showed that she would do what she needed to protect those she loves, even if her methods are questionable, including, you know, actually being involved in Kira's kidnapping. But when push came to shove, she certainly wouldn't let anyone hurt Sarah or Kira, as she proved when she freaking stabbed Brenda through the hands and shot Barry, and then went back and shot Brenda too. While I'm guessing Sarah, Felix, and Kira won't be gone too long, I am curious where their journey will bring them, and who might find them given how many factions we're beginning to meet out there. In a way, Orphan Black is beginning to remind me of another great show that we love on this podcast, Person of Interest, in how it's showing the existence of some amazing creation, whether it be clones on this series or the machine on that series, has become a lightning rod around which all sorts of different groups are gathering, some to exploit, some to worship, some to destroy. It will be interesting which kind of group will find them on the road or their journey, out on the road and their journey. Sort of on that front, we got to know Henrik Johansson, played by Peter Outerbridge this week, as a pastor with a scientific background who leads a faction of the Prolethean Brotherhood and is, is a calm, measured, and relatively kind person, as Helena is taken from the hospital to them, not wanting to dehumanize her like the others have. Of course, he's also scary and murderous, but we're not all perfect, right? He's already proving to be an excellent villainous addition to this second season of Orphan Black. There was plenty of funny material with Allison again this week, including more of her horrible-looking musical, her way-too-handsy director, and the awesome exchange she had with Felix. I killed Ansley. No, no, well, not really. Not only is Orphan Black one of the most creative television series in recent memory, it's also one of the most fluid in terms of genre. It's grounded in science fiction, and it's definitely a mystery drama, but it can also make you laugh so hard you briefly forget about the dire situations that Sarah and the clones often stumble into. As for Helena, it's too soon to say how her return will go, since right now she's in such a powerless position. The explanation for how she survived was simple, but effective. She has situs inversus, or in simple terms, her organs are Reversed. Now the question is, is this the same for all the clones? It seems highly unlikely someone like Cosima or Allison would have, have never been discovered to have this abnormality via their normal doctor's appointments. But maybe it's specific to Helena, much like Sarah is unique for being able to conceive among the clones. Could it be that each clone has something about their biology that makes them different? Also, since Helena is not only a clone, but Sarah's twin, the question of whether she can also conceive was raised in this episode by Pastor Henrik Johansson. Could that be where her 
her story is going this season while they artificially inseminate her much like they did with the cow this week on the farm. This episode was a good one for much of the main cast, including Art being brought in more fully into the story, even as Felix complained about a cop in the clone club, and Cosima being tempted with all the all of Rachel and Leaky's resources and being able to make crazy science with Delphine on an ongoing basis. Sarah's reunion with Kira was surprisingly quick, but it led to a lot of new and fascinating insight into Mrs. S and just how dangerous she can be. Good thing she's on Sarah's side, I guess. This episode quickly answered the question of what happened to Kira, who also doesn't completely trust Mrs. S at this point, and thankfully it didn't really make us spend too long wondering when Allison would discover the truth about Donnie actually being her monitor, but it also set up even more questions to be answered down the road. Sarah's not responsible for the situation she's found herself in, but it's her reality, and running away with Felix and Kira isn't going to change that, but it is going to make for some great storytelling as we watch. Another great episode, and last week's episode didn't have great live ratings numbers, but broke all kinds of DVR records. So keep watching. This season is going to be so good. Next, we're going to move on to my review of the new FX series Fargo with the episode entitled The Rooster Prince. Molly becomes suspicious of Lester. Meanwhile, Melville investigates a Blackwell plot. The second episode in FX's 10-episode arc revealed just a bit more of the mystery in Lorne Malvoe and introduced two new players who are central to, quote, Fargo's role in the now string of murders. Quote, Fargo, in this sense, is the organized crime surrounding Hess's trucking company in Bemidji. Each installment feels like a door opening just a little bit more. It's an interesting structure, one which lends itself very well to this series. We know more than Detective Molly Salverson, but less than Malvo and the crime syndicate from Fargo. This allows us to both stand as observer and active participant as Molly seeks to solve these strings of crimes. First and foremost, the murder of her beloved mentor. We have the distance and knowledge to experience the tension and excitement as she circles around Lester and can sympathize with her befuddlement as she seeks to unravel this tangled mess. Bob Odenkirk, playing the new sheriff Bill Olson, was simply spectacular as the recently appointed sheriff who is doing everything wrong. Yet he stumbles onto one essential piece of the puzzle, the involvement of the cutthroat world of regional trucking, which by all appearances does seem to play a part in this brutal and bloody true crime drama. It's both heartbreaking and hilarious that the widow of Sheriff Vern Thurman was called upon to remind the new sheriff to simply work the facts. It's all in the details, and as Molly was quick to notice, poor scrambled and fuzzy Lester has no trouble recalling Hubba Bubba, his chosen brand of gum as a child, but the particulars of the events leading to the three murders, including his wife's, conveniently seem, seem to elude him. As to details, the show is absolutely nailing them. There's something both gorgeous and playful about the little affirmations on Lester's wall. They're corny and yet seem to call out to him from a place beyond. Last week featured a poster of a lone fish swimming against the tide in the Nygaard's basement of death. It asked, what if you're right and everyone else is wrong? A sentiment that echoed Malvo's insistent that Lester must make his own rules in life. This episode we saw the platitude, everything happens for a reason, decorating the wall of Lester's bedroom. The sight of his very momentary collapse into guilt and despair. 
The cliche is used so cleverly in this episode because it actually works on multiple levels. First, it reflects Molly's perception of the case. She does not see this as a random work of a drifter or drifters. She sees these killings as connected, even if the links are somewhat tenuous and confusing at the present time. The phrase also reveals something about Lester's nature as a man who'd been seeking some sense of comfort in these platitudes, a feeling of being valued in a world that has treated him so poorly and with nothing but harsh judgment up to this point. Also, it's just the type of often empty comfort we tend to grasp at when we don't know what to say when something terrible has happened. Everything happens for a reason, meaning some unknown force is guiding our lives. Really though, Lester made his own fate, carved his own path. At the same time, there is some sense here that perhaps God and the devil really are vying for the souls of these characters. Lester certainly gave a big chunk of his away when he hammered his wife to death. In another nice touch on series creator Noah Hawley's part, Lester's now wrestling with the wound on his hand that's essentially his version of the telltale heart. We were treated to a bit more of Lorne Malvo's mysterious mind in this episode. Is it wrong that he's my favorite character? Because he is. He's like an animal peeing, or in this episode, pooping, on his territory as the circumstances demand. I look forward to the moment when Malvo actually meets his match. Perhaps he will in our two new friends from Fargo with the penchant for creative body disposal. Certainly the supermarket king's bodyguard is no real match for Lorne's unflappable menace. His encounter with the postal clerk was amusing, but not nearly as powerful as the there be dragons here confrontation with Colin Hanks Officer Grimley last week, and my one concern is that these sorts of scenes may begin to feel repetitive. For now, though, I find myself on the edge of my seat. I'm also awaiting the discovery of just what he does with those tapes, and why he has them. The second episode of FX's Fargo gave us another provocative glimpse into Lorne Malvo's fascinating depraved psyche, as Detective Silverson must fight the tide of ineptitude to engage in a proper investigation. As the game of cat and mouse develops between her and Lester, and we are introduced to rich and entertaining theatrical additional characters in this world, the story continues each week to leave me wanting more. Finally, we're going to wrap up the reviews this week with my review on Grimm with the episode entitled Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. While Nick and Hank investigate a female killer who targets Wesson, Catalan prepares to make a new alliance to ensure its Grimm's hiatus schedule has been more than a little ridiculous since the show started the second half of season three, but at least the writers can usually figure out a way to rope us back in. Not that the cliffhanger at the end of The Law of Sacrifice left much room for boredom. While I'm not exactly thrilled with the introduction of Teresa Rubel, the Grimm who doesn't know what a Grimm actually is, I'm willing to give Grimm the chance to make her worth my while. The show hasn't done me wrong yet, so I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. But as for an introduction, she was not trouble, she was terrible. The ruse to rescue the baby, Diana, from the royals was clever and perfectly executed, but the follow-up leaves a lot to be desired, and now Adeline is going to whoop everyone's ass, all because no one bothered to let her in to the cone of silence even a little bit. Part of that was strategic, I'm sure. The fewer people who know where the baby actually is, the better. However, Nick, Renard, everyone, really, they know, and they know Adeline. They know perfectly well what she's capable of, and they saw how destroyed she was by the loss of Diana. Did they think she'd just get over it? Why exactly can she not be trusted, but everyone else in Team Grimm can be? I'm all for a devious Adeline and her devious actions, but I cringed at the implications of what Victor asked her to do and how readily she jumped at the opportunity to screw over Nick and Renard, and all because she thinks the royals have Diana. Adeline is willing to do anything to get her daughter back or to at least be reunited with her. It's just shocking how dismissive everyone was of Adeline's maternal instinct, especially since at no point did she ever give Monroe, Nick, or any of the other 
others on Team Grimm any reason to doubt her dedication to her own child. They made their assumptions based on her past, which is somewhat fair, I guess, but man, people change with parenthood, and Season 3 has put a ton of emphasis on the idea of people, cultures, and destinies changing. Everyone on Grimm is trying to be better, despite having reasons not to be. That no one could see that same change in Adeline is a little surprising. At best, the addition of Trouble will serve as baggage to cart around for the next episodes or episode or two. Deadly enough to on her own, but too new in the world of Vesson and, and Grimm's to understand the whens and whys of how it all works. At worst, she knows more than she's letting on and totally playing Nick for some to be revealed later reason. With just three episodes left in the season, mostly why I'm concerned about this addition of Trouble, there's already so much going on in the stories that the show has been meticulously establishing all season, it's going to get a little cluttered. There's still time though, and Grimm has always been pretty successful in the mad dash to the finish. Oh yeah, speaking of the finish line, was Zombie Nick ever actually dealt with, or did that whole story just fade away? I guess we'll find out in the next three episodes. Join us for next week's episode, My Fair Vessen. Alright, that wraps up our reviews this week. Now let's move into the voicemail section. A call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. No voicemails this week. Come on, guys. We need some voicemails. We love playing Wu's voicemails, but he hasn't found a new show that he really wants to send us a voicemail on yet, so one of you guys needs to do so. Anyway, we look forward to hearing from many of you and our, our listeners this week, so we will have some Please. comments to play in the voicemail section, especially Game of Thrones, since it's our major second right now. If any of you are, have theories, if you read the book and you want to talk about differences that are not spoilerish, we would love to hear hear them some of the Please. things i've forgotten to talk about so just a reminder if you'd like to leave us a voicemail and we are begging for you to do so you can call 773-809-3363 and give us your feedback thoughts review or anything game of thrones and you can review one of the many new shows that are out that we haven't reviewed yet so yeah we just really hope to hear from some of you soon and leave us a voicemail because that'd be great for sure for sure again with that i mean i guess it's time to wrap Thank you for joining us on this psychedelic through the 70s. Okay, now we're going to have Nico take you back to present day where our next episode is going to take place with his thoughts on what's with telling us what's coming down the pipe. Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on Game of Thrones, Once Upon a Time with Dan and Andy, the finale of the following with Andy and Nico, Castle, Warehouse 13, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Revolution, and Glee, and our sitcom section including New Girl, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Americans, Fargo, Orphan Black, and Grimm, and maybe even a few more things. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at crossairways.com. Right, for sure. And also, you can check us out. Got a new home now on the Mix Radio Station, which is an online radio station available. And I need to add the links to the Mix to our website. But basically, um, in addition to our iTunes feed, our Lipson feed, got our regular RSS feed, you can listen to us 
on the mix. Again, basically, um, you can check out our podcast there weekly on Friday at 6 p.m. in the time slot that was graciously given to us by Jack Stipe, the owner of the mix. And our other podcast shows are available on the mix as well at various times. And I'll let Andy and Michael share with you um, that information on their respective podcasts. And so you can check us out on the mix and our regular site of this before, and the links to the mix are going to be coming on the site soon, so keep an eye out for those. Also, I recently set it up that there is a player now on our main website that will play all of our podcast episodes right off of our website. So if you're having trouble figuring out iTunes or don't use it or are confused with our lips and link, you can basically listen to our podcast episodes right on the website in both ACC and regular MP3 formats. Um, I just figured that would make things easier for you guys who are confused on how to listen to our episodes. So those are two big things from our sites um, that you can check out and hopefully we'll raise up our our listener numbers. Until our next episode, you can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a podcast hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And they basically choose a topic that's going on in the entertainment industry to basically talk about it for an hour to an hour and a half. So you can check that out for a mixed bag of topics about the entertainment industry. Also, we've got Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which is briefly out of hiatus right now to kind of be rebooted as more of a DC news source. So we're going to be more so reporting on news coming out of the world of DC entertainment rather than reviewing things. So we're hard at work on that. And also, we've got the Helicarrier Podcast, which is hosted by Andy and myself for the current time being. And basically, that covers episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Get more detail. And we'll be covering the next new episode of the show when it returns from hiatus. So if you like Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and watching that show, check out the Helicarrier Podcast for in-depth reviews on every episode. And if you're a fan of the hit CWTV series Arrow, you can check out ATA Longwell Hunters, the Arrow Podcast, Hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And that basically is a podcast that covers episodes of Arrow in greater detail on a weekly basis. And they will be covering episodes of Arrow once the show returns from hiatus, which I think is this week. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us in a variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Again, it's acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. You can also like our site on Facebook where you can follow all of the movie and TV news that Nico reports on during the week, as well as the rest of our podcast numbers. And also, you can stay updated on our podcast episode releases. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter or join our circle on Google+. Also, as we mentioned earlier, you can leave a voicemail sharing your thoughts on any of the shows we cover or suggestions on odd shows you'd like to, to cover. And what number can you call to do that? 773-809-3363. Yes. So call us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from some different people from week to week. Uh, we love Wu's voicemail. But we'd like to hear from some of the other people out there as well. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel, which has all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes, as well as previews for upcoming movies, including Guardians of the Galaxy, which will soon be posted on our site. And we also have trailers for X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and a whole lot more. So if you're excited for summer movies, check out our YouTube channel for all those previews. Also, we have recently set up an app with Stitcher Radio, which is available by visiting our website and clicking any of the links for that. So it's a free app, and we're hoping that that app will be much more successful in helping out ATA compared to the podcast box and Android apps, which aren't selling that great right now. So for an easier app to use, got easier access on our phone, you can download our Stitcher app. Also, we still have the podcast box, which will let you stay in contact with our podcast, can listen to our episodes on your iPad or iPhone. Can also, if you're on an Android or Windows device, we have our Android app, which will 
we'll let you listen to our podcast episodes. And that is available on the Amazon Marcus. All right. So once again, for our ATA podcast host, Michael J. Petty, Luke Kim, and Anthony DeBoff. I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reistek. Can I tell our next episode? We'll catch you on the airway. Okay, keep playing that funky music, you podcast listeners. See ya. <laughs> Now return to our regularly scheduled program.